Well, hello, and welcome into the Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy, and as always, I am delighted you're going to be joining me for some chats with some of Scotland's much-loved arts and cultural figures. And what a cracking and intriguing guest I have for you this week. None other than best-selling crime writer, creator of the Rebus series, playwright and fifer Ian Rankin. I first met Ian when I was working with him on his first ever stage play, Dark Road, at the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh, which brilliantly brought in a whole new audience. And in this episode, we talk about everything. We talk about Rebus, fan mail, writing, pints, theatre. However, no top tips on getting away with a crime. But I'm working on it, pals. Enjoy. So how's lockdown treating you, Ian? How's lockdown treating me? I'm getting a bit bored of it now. I'm getting a bit bored. Uh, the novelty value has long worn off. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm missing theatre, but I'm doing a lot of washings, Ian, at the moment. A lot of washings. Um, so are you, you're in Edinburgh at the moment, right? Like myself. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm in a very fortunate position, unlike actors, people who work in the theatre, TV, film, whatever, or musicians, in that I can keep working. Sure. Basically, half my life is, is, is normally as if I'm in a pandemic, which is sitting in an office writing books, making stuff up. And that part of my life has continued. Mm. Um, what hasn't been able to continue is the travel, the touring, the book festivals and everything else that goes with publishing a book. I'll tell you what I've really been loving actually during lockdown is seeing the pictures you've been posting on Twitter of your walks or a government approved walks should I say around Edinburgh it's like we're all turning into professional walkers Um, but there's been the odd one I've noticed outside the Oxford bar which of course is the bar of choice for your character John Rebus. Now I've been into the Oxford bar a couple of times and I really like it it's a no frills real ale pub but not exactly the most jumping place I've ever been. What was it about the Oxford Bar that made you choose it as the bar for John Rebus? Um, I was a postgraduate student uh, studying Muriel Spark at Edinburgh University. One of my flatmates was an undergraduate student, but he was also part-time barman at this place called the Oxford Bar. Uh-huh. And he sort of told me where it was, and I'd never, I didn't know it. I, um, I, I went to the pubs that students typically would go to around the university in Edinburgh um, and it's tucked away down a wee alley and I did try finding it once or twice and I just couldn't despite it being very central I couldn't find it so one night he said come on I'm going to take you and he took me to it um, and it was full of cops it was full of off-duty cops it was a, a kind of drinking den at that time and politicians and journalists all kinds of interesting people lawyers you name it um, so, several things. Number one, I quite like the fact that it was secret Edinburgh, that it was central, but it wasn't easy to find. It was the kind of place that Rebus might go. Two, it was full of people that could be useful to me in terms of writing my books. Um, and number three, it just had a nice atmosphere about it. There was no jukebox. It didn't really do food. It was just about the crack. It was just about conversation and drink. And long may it continue to be that way. I know you must be missing it, right? Well, actually, I'm going there this afternoon. Um, there's a, a charity thing that I've done, and it involved decorating a vase, a kind of ceramic vase. Lots of artists are doing it, but they had one spare, so they gave it to me. And I've got to drop it to the Oxford Bar so it can be collected. I know that you um, get a lot of fan mail sent to the Oxford Bar as well. Have you ever been sent anything a bit unusual? 
not really unusual. Uh, you get nice cards from people all over the world. Sometimes people send me books they think I might like to read or CDs of music they think I might like to listen to. Um, I mean, I know writers who do get sent weird stuff, but I tend not to. Years and years and years ago when I was living in France, I did get sent letters sent to me via my publisher in London from a woman who said she felt like a character in a Rebus novel. Um, and they were, these were all long handwritten letters, which would always eventually get into her sex life. That's funny. I, I've been sent some home baking um, to theatres a couple of times. And I'm a bit funny about that because I kind of want to see your hygiene certificate before I'm going to eat your home baking. Um, so I think the last time I saw you in person was about 20 months ago um, for a coffee. And you were signing a copy of your latest Rebus in A House of Lies. And that was for my then boyfriend's birthday, now ex. So that worked out well. I'm sorry, but that's my fault, right? You're going to... I was gonna... I'm blaming you entirely for that. I was going to say, have your books ever been described as the grim reaper of romance? Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, there's been a number of times I've been at a signing and a woman has come up and her husband's kind of shuffling along behind her. He's obviously not a reader, she is. And she'll say, oh, Mr. Rankin, you've given me so many hours of pleasure in bed. <laughs> and I've got to be very careful then to say, no, I think you'll find that's Rebus who's given you hours of pleasure, not me, as the husband looks on forlornly. Should we be uh, renaming them Rankin's Romances? No, there's not much romance in my books. I'll tell you, I, in the third novel, when I was still very young, I did put a sex scene in. I thought, if you're going to have crime novels, there should be a bit of sex in there as well. And I had Rebus having sex. And my editor said, no, please don't. Uh, God's sakes, leave us at the, at the bedroom door and leave something to the reader's imagination. And since then, uh, I've never written, never written another sex scene, which I'm very happy about because I found it really toe-curdling to try and write that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Oh, yeah, I, th I even find sex scenes on stage sometimes can just be... Oh, they're just quite difficult, I think, um, to get that balance between... Um, just enough in the order and tipping into something a bit too blue or or over romanticizing um i remember you telling me a story actually i always think it's quite amusing that when your first book your first rebus book was was brought out and you saw it on the shelves that you went in and moved it from the crime section over to the more sort of traditional scottish section with robert louis stevenson so did you never view yourself as a crime writer was that not the plan no, when I wrote the first Rebus novel, I wasn't a reader of crime fiction. I think I'm very unusual in that. Most people who write crime fiction do it because they're fans of crime fiction to start with. I had read some crime fiction when I was a kid, but it had mostly just been books of films that I wasn't old enough to go and see at the cinema. Right. Shaft, The Black Private Eye. I wasn't old enough to get in to see a Shaft film, but I could buy the soundtrack album and I could uh, read the books. Um, so, but at university I studied literature, American literature, and then Scottish literature, and the first Rebus novel I thought was a proper grown-up literary novel that was uh, a modern retake or a modern take on Jekyll and Hyde. And so that first book you are meant as a reader to think that the detective, the hero, may also be the villain, mm. um, that he may be a Jekyll and Hyde character. So it was only when the book was published and I went to look for it that I started finding it on the crime shelves. And I was looking, and here were all these writers I'd really never heard of or only vaguely heard of, people like Ruth Rendell and P.D. James. Uh, and I thought, well, 
and at the same time, I'd also been sent a letter from the Crime Writers Association saying, oh, you've written a crime novel, you may wish to join us. Ah. And so I thought, well, I joined the CWA, the Crime Writers Association, where I could rub shoulders with people like Ruth Rendell and, and P.D. James. And I started reading the books. Uh, and I liked them a lot. I liked the sense of place that you get in crime fiction. I liked the strong central characters you get. I liked the big moral quandaries. Um, the books could be political. And the nice thing about a detective as a character, as I discovered fairly early on, is that he or she allows you access to every layer of society. So if you want to write political books, about the problems we have in society, then a cop is a pretty good way of doing it. That's really interesting, actually, because I was going to ask you about your latest, very successful um, Rebus novel, A Song for the Dark Times, which came out at the end of last year. That seems a very prescient title. Was that born out of lockdown then? No, it wasn't. I, I got that title middle of 2019. Um, started working on the book September 2019, so it was pre-pandemic. I just thought the world of 2019 was in a pretty dark place. Mm. And I could see resonances and parallels with the way the world was in the 1930s, tipping towards the fight against fascism. You know, I could see the rise of the far right in various countries and cultures around the world and in Europe. Um, Brexit was, was, was happening and it was turning us against our friends and, and one-time neighbours and telling us that we were different from them and better than them. Uh, and, uh, you know, that narrative of polarization of us and them uh i wanted to write about it and then i discovered about these internment camps that existed in the uk spread throughout the uk in the early years of world war ii where we locked up our friends and neighbors the people that ran the local ice cream shop or the deli or whatever who had a italian surname or a german surname who'd been in this country for generations possibly, but were suddenly seen as being potentially the enemy and were sent to these camps. And one of these camps in Scotland, Wotton, was in the far north of Scotland. And I thought, oh, that's where Rebus's daughter lives. Sure. Maybe I could have a fictitious camp. There's a, an archeological dig going on. Something happens to somebody that's working on that dig and that takes Rebus up there because his daughter is tangentially involved. So that allowed me to write about what was happening and what I thought was now the, the potential for us to go back to those dark days. And the title, you know, as you will know, because you're an actor, Brecht, um, will there, will, you know, when the dark times come, will there be songs? Yes, there will be songs about the dark times. That's a line from Bertolt Brecht. Yeah. I just thought, what a great title. Uh, just a great title for the kind of thing I want to write about, which is the potential for us to be living in dark times again. So it all came together and, and I did the research, I started writing the book and then did the research on the book and then lockdown came. So I sat and wrote the book in this very room in blissful isolation. Um, and thanks to the power of the internet and emails, I could send it to my publisher. It could be edited without any meetings between us. Um, and eventually was published during the lockdown. And yeah, as you say, it did really well. I think because people found, you know, readers were just hungry for, for new books. And publishers and bookshops had found ways to get those books to them. Uh, it was a bonus for indie bookshops, for small indies. It was a bonus because the big players in the game, like Waterstones, had to shut. Um, they couldn't do the logistics. They couldn't work out how to open during a pandemic. But the small indies, bless them, you could order the book online or by phone and go and pick it up from their door. Or they would bicycle out to you and leave it on your doorstep and phone you to tell you it was there. So obviously Rebus is traditionally set in Edinburgh. 
And was it a conscious choice then to move him somewhere else to open up other avenues for that character? It's a combination of things. I wanted to get him out of his comfort zone. I wanted to take me out of my comfort zone. Um, I wanted to write about internment camps and they tended to be a long way or some distance away from big settlements. So I thought the Highlands was perfect. His daughter was already living up there. I thought, well, that's quite a nice connection straight away. Um, so there were lots of reasons to take him up there. Um, and of course I did the drive up there, up the, the North Coast 500 and got to Tongue, which is where in previous books his daughter has been living. And it wasn't right. It just wasn't right. It, it was too big for my needs. It had too much stuff going on commercial premises, hotels, cafes, a police station. So I kept driving until I got to Betty Hill, a few miles east, and I thought this is more like it. But I decided I would. I wanted a fictional hamlet, so I called it Never or Never, mm -hmm. whatever, however you pronounce the river up there. Um, and that was it. So I ended up with, a, with his daughter having moved to a fictional village that's just a little bit outside tongue. So um, why the name Rebus? It's a Polish name, which I didn't know when I invented it. I invented it because it also means picture puzzle. And I thought, oh, what a clever thing to call a cop. Inspector puzzle, basically. Especially when in the first book he's getting sent picture puzzles. And then I met a guy called Joe Rebus, who actually lives in Edinburgh and lives on Rankin Drive. And uh, he said it's, it's Polish and it's pronounced Rebus, or he pronounces it Rebus. So I don't know. I mean, I, you know, however, however you want to pronounce it is, is how you pronounce it. I've always pronounced it Rebus, which I think makes it sound slightly more Scots. Yeah, it does sound very Scottish to me. His flat is on a street in Marchmont. Was that a conscious choice or did you just one day walk by that flat? No, I lived, I lived I, I, when I was a postgraduate student uh, for a year, I uh, lived in a flat on Arden Street in Marchmont, ground floor. I had the bay window living room was my bedroom. And when I started thinking about the Rebus novel uh, that I was going to write, a novel I was going to write about this guy um, who I thought was probably going to be a cop, I just looked across the road and thought, okay, he lives two stories up opposite where I'm sitting right now. And in fact, cops, it's not a place where cops would live, Marchman. It's a bit studenty and always has been quite studenty. Um, but his, his wife was a teacher and maybe a teacher would live there, so maybe she would persuade him that that was a place to live. So yeah, so he, oddly, he's always lived in that street, which is where I lived when I was an impoverished student. On the other hand, Cafferty, the gangster who runs Edinburgh, is where I tend to live now. I tend to live wherever Cafferty is living. So Cafferty uh, lived in a big detached Victorian house in Merkiston, which is very Tony and posh. And when I started making money, that's where I moved. So I moved into Cafferty's house. Then I decided Cafferty would move to Quarter Mile, which is a exclusive in the inverted commas development, which used to be the old Royal Infirmary. Uh, he's in a penthouse triplex apartment. And then a couple of years ago, my wife and decided that we should move to Quarter Mile. So uh, from my office, where I'm just now, I can look out my window, look up a couple of stories and basically see Big Jer Cafferty's triplex apartment. That makes sense. I've gone from being the hero of the books to the villain. And you were talking about the political undertone to your books and your latest one obviously touches on land ownership and Brexit. Is having a political undertone important to you and was that influenced by your own upbringing? Um, I don't know. My parents weren't particularly political. One voted one way, one voted the other. And there weren't many books in the house. There weren't great readers. Um, they'd left school at 14, 15, worked in factories and such like all their lives, shops, etc. 
So I didn't grow up in a very political household. I guess when I got to Edinburgh University, there was the option to become more politically inclined. Um, I just do think that the crime novel at its best is political because you're, you, you've got some very big central questions in crime fiction. You've got why do human beings keep doing terrible things to each other? And to explore that involves exploring the political, I think. That involves exploring society from top to bottom. And um, Rebus always struck me as a bit of an anarchist. Uh, if you are rich, wealthy, well-connected, and you're committing crime because you're greedy or because you think you'll get away with it, he's much more likely to, to go after you than he is if you're someone at the very bottom of society who's committing a crime because you're desperate, because you're, you, you know, you've, you've just, you've, you've got nothing. Um, so I think he's much more likely to give someone like that a break than he is if you're posh and well-connected. So I guess that makes the books slightly political. Of course, there's a bigger question that is brewing now for people who write about police officers, which is in the current state of the world, how can you write about a police officer and make them the goodies when we look around us and see that so often the police are not the goodies? Um, they're, the, they're not the knights in shining armor protecting all and sundry from whatever evil happens to be out there. So there's big questions coming for people who write police procedurals. And I mean, I'm part of that, except I guess I've got the, I've got the slight um, luxury that Rebus is now retired. So he's no longer part of that world. So I don't have to explore it quite as fully as people do who are still writing about cops. Did you work alongside police or do interviews with them or on the other side with criminals before you started writing the books? Or do you just write what you know and, and from imagination? Mostly imagination. Uh, I mean, the first Rebus book, I mean, I've told the story a lot and it keeps getting embroidered. So the truth I've almost forgotten now. But I did write to the chief constable, Lothian and Borders Police, and say, I'm writing a book about a cop in Edinburgh. I need, I've got some questions about police, how the, how the police work. Can you help me? And I was sent along to a police station in Leith to talk to two detectives. Um, but the first Rebus novel is about child abductions and child murders. And a young child had been abducted from just outside Edinburgh uh, not long before. I didn't know that because I didn't really read the news at that time. So in these detectives' eyes, I became a possible suspect and I went into the system as a possible suspect. Oh, wow. Um, and only found out a few weeks later that I was a suspect. Anyway, um, I think they very quickly wrote me off as a suspect, which is good, but it did put me off getting in touch with the police in future. Uh, and it wasn't until maybe three or four Rebus novels had been published uh, that a cop came to one of my signings, one of the talks I was giving in Edinburgh. He was a detective sergeant and he said, look, Ian, you do make quite a few procedural mistakes in your books. So he then became a really good friend uh, and ally. And the books did become more realistic because he corrected me on a lot of things that I was getting wrong. Villains, not so much. Um, I, once or twice, I've got word that a gangster or a reformed gangster wants me to help them get published. But luckily that's never come to anything. Um, 
it'd be very hard to say no, I guess. I can imagine. So I try and keep my head down as far as possible. Um, you do something quite unusual in your genre. You age Rebus in real time. And often other crime novels that I've read, the protagonist remains in their 30s. Was that a conscious choice to age him through the books? Yeah, it was a conscious choice. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure now why I decided to do that, but I thought it'd be interesting to look at the arc of this person's life. I think I thought, how can I change about, how can I write about the changes happening in society and changes happening in Scotland if the main character doesn't change? It, it struck me that he would be changed by every case he worked on, that he would be changed by circumstance, and he had to age, he had to age, which gave me problems, of course, because in the first book, he's 40. So time came for him to retire. And at the end of Exit Music, which was Rebus novel number 17, he has reached the mandatory retirement age. So I retired him and I thought, that's it, I'm done with him now. I can't write about him anymore. Um, but then I thought, what would he do? He's a detective to his very bones. He would apply to work cold cases. There was a cold case unit in Edinburgh staffed by retired detectives. And I thought, this is what Rebus will do. So I found a way to bring him back after an absence of five years, he comes back. And then I found things for him to do in proper retirement because eventually he had to leave that job as well. And I just keep finding something for him to do. But he can't, I mean, he's, yeah, you're right, he's changed so much. He's got health issues he didn't used to have. He's not got the physical heft that he had as a, as a younger man where people were scared of him because he was very physical and intimidating. Well, he's not that anymore. He's in his late 60s. So he doesn't get into fights because he would lose them. He can't chase suspects anymore. Um, physically, he can't chase them. He can't even climb the stairs, which is why at the beginning of the new book, he has to sell his flat and move to a ground floor property. Um, I got lucky there, by the way, because a, uh, a ground floor property did happen to come up for sale around the time that I was moving Rebus. So he didn't even have to leave his street. He could stay in the same street and realistically could buy a flat. And then the flat that he's been living in for the last 30 odd years went on sale in real life. I nearly bought it. I thought about, I thought about buying it and, and doing it as a, an Airbnb and you could stay in Rebus's flat. Uh, but I thought twice. I, I thought. Surely if the Oxford Bar comes up for sale, surely you have to buy it. Yeah, I probably would. Clearly you write a lot about crime and I know you grew up in Fife and I've also heard a lot about the YLM, the Young Lock Gelly Mental. So I'm wondering how mental were the Young Lock Gelly Mental and was a young Ian ever part of a rival beef high gang? Were you a rebel grown up, Ian? I was a Jekyll and Hyde figure. I was sensitive and wrote poetry in my bedroom or song lyrics in my bedroom. But I didn't want to stand out because if you stood out and you looked different, you were going to be a bullied or picked on or whatever. So on the surface, I was the same as everybody else. I wore the Doc Martens, I wore the Harrington jacket, I hung around the streets, um, staring balefully at passing cars that came from outside our neighbourhood. Um, I was not quite part of the, the YCD, which is Young Carden Den, Carden Den's where I grew up, but our neighbouring village or neighbouring town, Loch Gelly, they had the feared uh, YLM, the Young Loch Gelly Mental. And sometimes our gang would go to fight their gang and I would say, oh guys, I've got to go home from a tea, sorry, I can't come along. And I would go home and write about it. I would sit in my sensitive bedroom being a sensitive teenager and write about it um, and channel it, uh, how, what might happen during one of these fights, one of these battles. So yeah, on the surface I looked tough, but underneath I was sensitive. I think the closest I got to being in a gang was being a fan of the sensational Alex Harvey band. And the sensational Alex Harvey band, when they played gigs, Alex would always come on stage and he had a fake wall, a kind of polystyrene wall, and he would spray paint 
Vambo rules okay on the wall. And I thought, yay. <laughs> you were in a band, weren't you, for a while? Uh, when I was 18, 19, I was in five second best punk band, The Dancing Pigs. Um, there was two punk bands. There was us and the Skids. Skids were way superior to us, my God. Um, Stuart Adamson, who played guitar in the Skids, was at my school. He went to Beath High School. He was about two, three years above me. So he wouldn't talk to me, obviously, because you didn't, if somebody was two or three years below you, you wouldn't talk to them. But when the Skids started, we used to go and see them all the time. They played um, almost every week. They played in Kirkcaldy at the Pogo Agogo Club, which was actually the ballroom of the station hotel. And it wasn't even a stage. They just played on the same level as the punters. <clears throat> and uh, you know, punk disco that you would pogo at, and then the band would come on, and that was usually the skids. Uh, and we used to, I, I was just sort of leaving school at that time, and my mum had worked in a chicken factory, and she'd got me a job in the chicken hatchery. And we all got boiler suits, so we'd, I nicked a boiler suit, and I, I poured neat bleach on it, so it was kind of, kind of blue boiler suit with white splashes down it. And I would change into that, on the way to the Pogo Agogo Club, having left home again, Jekyll and Hyde, having left home in my regular clothes, I would become a punk on the way to the Pogo Agogo Club. The problem was I hadn't done anything with the, the um, boiler suit apart from bleach it. So as I got sweaty, the reek meant there was a, like a, a hazard raid. There was a, a hazardous bio area around me of about eight feet that nobody would come within. Were you the first person in your family to go to university then? Yeah, I was, I was the black sheep. Um, I had two, ha I had two sisters, half-sisters, one from each of my parents' previous marriages. Uh, and I'd come along with my parents were basically getting on for 40. Um, so one of my sisters was married the year I was born. The other one was seven years older than me. Um, and, you know, they'd left school at 15, 16, uh, got jobs. I was just, I was kind of clever. I was brainy. And at that time, if you were brainy and working class, you know, I mean, I went to Ochterdern Secondary School, which kicked everybody out at 16. But at the age of 14, I was streamed to Beath High School, Beath Senior High, because I'd, you know, my first two years of high school, my marks were good enough. I did go to Beath. Um, and it was expected you would then go into university. And um, I had one uncle who lived in Bradford in Yorkshire, which is where my mum's from. And he was an accountant, a chartered accountant. He was the only person I really knew who owned his own house and owned a car. And so it was expected I would become an accountant just because I had an un uncle who'd made a success of it. I got, I got a C in my higher economics. And I thought, what are you doing, Ian? Go to uni, study a subject you're not interested in just so you can get a job at the end of it. So I had you know, an epiphany. And I went and spoke to my parents and said, look, I'm actually going to apply to study English. And were they supportive of that? No, they said, what kind of job are you going to get with that? And I said, well, I'll come back to Fife and be a teacher at Beath High School, probably. I couldn't think of anything else to do with an English degree, but it was what I wanted to do. So I went off to Edinburgh and it was, a, I mean, talk about jumping into the fire. You had to study philosophy and stuff in first year. And I went, what? I had no idea what anybody was on about. Everybody had been to posh private schools. They'd been to six colleges. They were all very eloquent. Whereas all the Scottish working class kids who'd been through the comprehensive system were sitting, writing everything down. Never saying a word tutorial, but writing literally everything down. And lectures copying everything down that the, the lecturer said. And, and memorising it, because that's what you did at school. You memorised stuff and then you just spouted it out at exams. So I'm going to move on to our creative challenge since we've been talking about creativity and writing. And I've decided to take you from the dark side to the light side. 
I would like you to rewrite a wee bit of these well-known romantic novels and fairy tales. So the idea is I give you the first couple of lines and I would like you to continue with a couple of lines of your alternative ending. So number one, are you ready? Go on. So number one. Number one is from Bridget Jones' diary and the lines are £29 but post-Christmas, alcohol units 14 but effectively covers two days as four hours of party was on New Year's Day, cigarettes 22, calories 5,424. Uh, corpses 11 and counting, discovered none so far VG. literally shifted it into Reba's world. Well, that's a busy day. Corpse is a living. <laughs> wow. No, not in one day. <laughs> it's a cumulative total. <laughs> okay, so number two is from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And Grumpy says, you fool, fine time you picked to sneeze. Which is how Seven Dwarves ended up in court on stalking charges. Little did they know that I was in court that day too. I had a job for them. It wasn't necessarily a legal job, but they were perfect for it. <laughs> Can you imagine the headlines? <laughs> no white seven dwarves up in court. <laughs> Come on, you can see the you can see the seven dwarves as a criminal gang. <laughs> okay, you know? number three. So this is from Mills and Boone. It was at the coffee morning okay. in aid of St. Wildridge's Church, but Susan's holiday began to take a livelier turn. Oh. At first, the hospital admissions were put down to food poisoning. Only later did it transpire they had all been killed. It was the beginning of a story that allowed me to meet my perfect match. Alas, it was far too late. That sounds like my life. You can, see, you can see a theme emerging here. I'm managing to turn all these lovely, sunny, light-hearted stories into grim horror and crime stories. You know what? It's refreshing. You're keeping it real, Ian. We're not living in a romanticised world here, Ian. These are dark times. The Cultural Coven is delighted to have musical support from singer-songwriter, musician, member of the Red Hot Chili Pipers, and very importantly, a fifer. Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. Thanks Cameron for letting us use this tune. So I first met you when I worked with you in 2013 on your first stage play, Dark Road, at the Lyceum, which you co-wrote with Mark Thompson and which again explores the dark side of Edinburgh. And it brought a whole new audience into the theatre. It really was buzzing. But what made you want to write for theatre and how does that differ from writing a novel? Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's, a huge, it's a completely different world. It's a different way of telling a story. Um, I used to meet Mark Thompson for a coffee now and again, we would chat about this and that. He knew I was a fan of theatre, my wife and I go to the theatre a lot. Um, used to go to the Lyceum an awful lot. And uh, he just said to me one day, he said, why don't we see more contemporary crime drama in the theatre? Um, and so we started exploring the notion that maybe we could do something that would be theatrical. A story that could only be told on the stage that wasn't really suitable to be told as a narrative in a novel. 
Um, and it was a challenge, but of course he held my hand the whole way through, being a writer-director. But it, it was an, an eye-opener to me because suddenly I was getting behind the curtain of The Wizard of Oz and getting to see how you guys do it. So I was able to sit in in rehearsals every single day because Mark is a kind of director who wants his writer there with him throughout the process. Uh, and I loved it. I just loved it to bits. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It's all dialogue driven. There's so, there's so many things you cannot do. There's only so many characters you can have. Uh, the, the, the chronology has got to be, you know, it's different from a crime novel. You can't suddenly jump here, there and everywhere without explaining to the audience what you're doing. And as you said, we got a, we, I mean, the people, the, the, the bar of the Lyceum said they'd never seen better business. So they were delighted. Uh, every night was busy. The bar was absolutely heaving. Because one thing we know about crime fans is they like a drink. Um, and we would sort of mill around in the bar at half time, sort of listening in on people's conversations. Or were they getting it? Were they enjoying it? Did they know what was going on? Were they, you know, and it was just, it was wonderful. As a novelist, of course, until the internet came along, I couldn't get an immediate reaction to my work. My work would disappear into the void and people were reading it miles away from where I was sitting and I didn't know if they were enjoying it or not. As a writer, if you're sitting in the first night of a play, my God, you soon know if the audience are getting it and enjoying it. And what, again, was extraordinary was that Mark just went away and said, I think we need to rewrite this, we need to tweak this, we need to change this, uh, which you know is what the kind of first week is all about. Uh, the first week of shows is, is just tightening it up, seeing what the audience are getting and what they don't get and what's working and what's not working. And you don't, having done months of prep, you don't know until it's on the stage being acted in front of an audience whether it's working or not. So I have to say on that show, I had the best press night I have ever had as it was sponsored by Highland Park due to yourself. And I think it was the first time I've ever seen bouncers on the door of the Lyceum because there was, what, about four floors of whiskey? It was the best press night ever. I'm not sure how good our show was the next day, however, but I think theatre should be sponsored by whiskey forever. Are you a massive whiskey fan, Ian? Yep. Uh, I, I mean, Rebus is. Uh, I, like, I like the occasional glass of whiskey, but he's a huge fan. And down the years, that served me very well. So Highland Park have been involved. They helped us celebrate 30 years of Rebus. They did a 30-year-old malt whiskey named after him. Did the same for the 10th anniversary of Rebus. They did a 10-year-old malt whiskey named after him. Um, other whiskies like Macallan have sponsored prizes out of one, so I've been very fortunate with them. And Lafroig, I did an event at Lafroig Distillery on Isla uh, a few years ago for the Isla Book Festival. So the fact that I seem to be synonymous with good malt whisky is a, is a blessing, not a curse. So you then went on and did a second play, which was the Rebus play. Do you have any plans to do any more? Dark Shadows put a lot of bums on seats. Uh, and because it was successful in terms of box office, um, I was asked to do another one. Um, Rona Monroe, who co-wrote that with me, was a bit too busy and couldn't get involved in a, a further play. So another, another writer came on board and we've done something. But then, of course, the pandemic came. And we hadn't quite finished it. We'd done a few drafts, but we weren't quite there yet. And the pandemic came and just shut everything down. So as far as I know, the producer is sitting on it and when theatres have opened again and we can start booking slots, um, hopefully there will be a second Rebus play coming. Wonderful. The one thing I did do for the National Theatre of Scotland during lockdown was that they asked me to um, do a little five, ten minute monologue to, do, to put online. Um, and uh, Scenes for Survival, I think it was called, part of a series. And I, I'd been getting asked, people on Twitter and that were saying, what would Rebus be doing during the lockdown? How would Rebus cope? How would he survive? 
So I wrote a little monologue about Rebus living in his tenement flat and being in isolation um, during lockdown because he's got emphysema, he's got COPD, so he can't get this uh, virus that could kill him. Um, and the National Theatre of Scotland, as I wrote it and sent it to him, and he said, oh, Brian Cox has said he'll do it. Uh, I went, wow, because he was my first choice for Rebus all those years ago when it was thinking of being televised, when the BBC bought the option many, many, many years ago. But he was too busy in Hollywood to even contemplate it back then. So I got my man eventually. And he was in lockdown in New York State, uh, film and succession, between film and succession, he was in lockdown. So he dressed the set, i.e. his kitchen, in this mm. cabin in Upper State New York to look like an Edinburgh tenement as far as possible. Uh, and he did it. And it's online, you can see it on YouTube, Rebus Lockdown Blues. And it was, it was just such a privilege to sit on the Zoom rehearsals yeah. uh, for that and then to watch uh, Brian Cox just nail it. It was, it was amazing. Oh, he's wonderful. And he's always a very generous man, I find. So I've done a couple of BBC radio versions of Rebus, along with the lovely Ron Donaghy, who uh, read in the part of Rebus. And in these radio versions, um, they were adapted by Chris Dolan. How do you feel about your work being handed over to someone else? It's very easy when you know Chris Dolan's doing it because you know he's going to do it well. Um, it's the same with TV and everything else. You, you just have to trust that the people are doing it for the right reasons. They're passionate about the, 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 the project and they'll, they'll do their, their, their uttermost to make it work properly. Um, I've got to say that the radio dramatizations are really, really good. Um, Chris plays as true to the books as he possibly can, given the format. Um, and Ron Donaghy is great. Uh, and in fact, Ron did get to play Rebus on stage uh, eventually. Oh, of course. When he, when he took over um, the part uh, when, the, the play went on, when the Rebus play went on the road and he had to take over. Um, and yeah. I mean, he's he's great, and uh, but I, you know, the, I think audio. I love audio. Uh, unlike, I've never watched Rebus on television because I don't want actors to get inside my head. But I don't mind it so much on radio. I can listen to them on radio, and it doesn't seem to affect me so much. I don't sit down to write the next Rebus with the radio Rebus in my head the way I would if I'd actually seen them physically acting. Sometimes with certain roles, I have to do things to help me switch off after, like watching rubbish TV or go for a run to get rid of the adrenaline. And Rebus resides in the dark side of the human soul. So is it hard for you to switch off or not be affected by exploring that? No, I think um, it's almost like a, it's therapeutic. It's like an exorcism by translating all this dark stuff into my head onto paper and giving it to Rebus to deal with. It's a way, it's almost like psychoanalysis. It's a way of me dealing with it and getting rid of it. Um, and so if you meet crime writers in the flesh, uh, we're just nice folk. We, you know, you'll always find them in the bar. You'll always find us chatting away. We're very collegiate. We got on with each other. We're not stabbing each other in the back the way romantic novels, novelists do. Ooh. Always get in trouble for saying that, but I love saying it anyway. Um, so no, I mean, it's, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think it was Val McDermott who once said, if crime writers didn't get this stuff on the page, they might be quite dangerous individuals. So we're talking in the week of Mother's Day, and I know something that we have in common is that we both lost our mothers relatively young. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to think it didn't define me, but it probably did change my path in some ways. It gave me a different perspective on life. Did losing your mum change your path or push you on in any way, do you think? I think it, it definitely darkened me. I think it darkened my... Uh 
my nature. I think it darkened my psychology, my take on the world, my philosophy of life. Um, it was unfairness of it, I think, that got me. I mean, my parents had worked hard all their lives to bring up their kids as best they could. Their youngest one goes off to university. That's the empty nest. They're preparing for retirement. Both of them are preparing for retirement. They've got some good years ahead. They can enjoy themselves. Um, the weight is lifted from their shoulders. And literally, the month I started at Edinburgh University, my mum took ill and was rushed into hospital. And then she spent the next six months or so going downhill slowly but surely, uh, giving very little help. I mean, she was in the, the house, my dad looking after her as best he could. Um, I just thought it's just so unfair. And um, I'm sure a lot of that guided me towards writing darker and darker books, perhaps. Um, not trying to write comedies or Mills and Boone or anything else, but trying to write in dark books. Uh, and maybe get more interested in crime fiction as a way of exploring that darker side of human nature and darker side of life. The kind of stuff that happens to us, a sense of injustice, all of that. The thing about Rebus is he can bring about a kind of justice, a sense of justice. If he, if he brings one bad person to book and puts them on trial, then he's done something towards making the world a less dark place. So there could be something to that in it as well. Uh, yeah, it's hard. I mean, Mother's Day is hard. Um, luckily, my wife's mother is still around in her late 80s. Um, so there's one kind of mother figure still in our lives. And it means that my sons have always had a grandmother figure. I didn't know. I, all my grandparents were dead before I was born. So I never knew any of my grandparents at all. Uh, so, yeah, it was tough. It was tough. And, you know, I... I was at Edinburgh University, again, coming back to Jekyll and Hyde, I was at Edinburgh University studying Keats and Shelley and Byron and stuff by day and then getting a train back at the weekend to watch my mum deteriorate a little bit further and my dad start tearing his hair out a little bit more. And then I would get back on the train Sunday night to come back to Edinburgh and start getting back into Milton and, uh, and Dickens and Shakespeare again. It was a very weird time in my life, which is reflected in the diaries that I kept. Uh, which I do occasionally refer back to. It sounds like I was at a similar age to you and your life was just completely flipped. But your parents were clearly a real support to you. But I imagine, like a lot of artists, it took a lot of effort and time to get to the level of success that you have. Did you ever have to do any other jobs to survive? Loads. I mean, all the time I was at uni, I was working in a chicken hatchery or working in a frozen veg factory at the summer holidays. This was at a time when summer jobs and holiday jobs were available to students. Um, when I left uni, uh, I worked in all kinds of things, um, uh, mostly as a tax collector based at Sockton in Edinburgh. Um, that was a kind of six month posting. It was just a job that I got from the job aid, you know, from the, the employment center. And then I went back to uni, did a PhD. And when I came out of that, my wife, well, I got married. My wife had a job in London working for the civil service. So I moved down there and I worked as a secretary at Middlesex Polytechnic for a while. And then I got a job on a music magazine, working as a, a writer, um, sub-editor, um, what have you. Uh, and then my wife and I moved to France and that was when I became a full-time writer, but making very little money and panicking about how little money I was making because suddenly I was the breadwinner. Um, up till then, my wife has ba had basically been the breadwinner. Um, and yeah, it was a nervy, it was a lot of nervy years before I broke through. I mean, in terms of financial success, it must have been Rebus book number nine or 10, by which time I'd written almost 20 books in total. 
um, before I could get a mortgage on a decent sized place in Edinburgh. And I think I'm glad it happened that way. If success had come really early on, I'd be insufferable. <laughs> Can I ask about your working processes? Do you have a set work routine and what comes first? Is it the idea or is it that your publisher says, right, Ian, I need a book by X, Y or Z? Uh, that's mostly it. It's mostly there's a, I've signed a contract for a book or a series of books. There'll be deadlines built into that as to when I'm to deliver them. I'm the laziest hardworking author I know. Um, I would rather be doing anything than writing a book and I'll try and put off, I'll try and put it off until the, the last minute. So it's when the deadline is looming, say it's a deadline is six months away, suddenly the adrenaline kicks in, I start to panic and I find a story, I find a theme, I find something I want to explore. And I start writing. And when I start writing, I write fast. So I'll be sitting in this room on my laptop. The first draft is done within 30 to 40 days. It's rough, a bit rough and ready, but it's there. It's the kind of spine of the story. Does that work? Do the characters work? Then I go away and do the research and come back and do the second draft. Um, and the whole process takes six months because six months is what I've got. I've touched wood. I've not missed the deadline yet. Um, and I, when I'm writing, I try and write every day because I don't do a lot of note taking and plotting beforehand. I mean, famously, I never know when I start a book who the killer is. It's only through writing the first draft that I work out who did it and why. Um, uh, and I get an inkling usually halfway through the book. Um, so it's written quickly. That injects pace into it. And also, I don't get bored and I don't forget stuff. So the first draft is written very quickly. And then the hard work starts of editing and editing and editing. Um, but yeah, it takes about six months. And then when the book's published, normally you'd be out on the road for a few months touring with it. So a book a year is a pretty tough ask. And it's pretty much been a book a year until fairly recently. And then my wife said, you need to slow down, um, start smelling roses. But of course, during the pandemic, couldn't have holidays, couldn't go traveling. So I wrote more than ever. I mean, I wrote two novels during the pandemic so far. Um, and bits and pieces that we play let for the National Theatre of Scotland and various other things. And I'm working on some TV stuff at the moment. So I've not slowed down because writing is my escape route from the pandemic. It's a way of digging out. It's an escape tunnel. Uh, while I'm writing, I don't have to think about it too much. Do you let your wife read it before you pass it on to your publisher? Can she be honest with you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if I've got any problems, anything I'm stuck with, we'll, keep, we'll talk it through. I'll say, look, I need to get Rebus from here to there. I can't work out how to do it. And she might make suggestions. When the book is, is um, not the first draft, nobody sees the first draft except me. The second draft, when things is getting a bit more together, I'll print it off and show it to my wife and she'll go through it with a pencil in her hand, writing in the margins. And I'll be going, oh, what's she writing? What's she writing? Is she liking it? Does she not like it? Does she not understand it? Um, and then she hands that back to me. I'll read through what she's written and we'll have a discussion about that. And then I'll change mostly what she said, because she's a great reader. She reads a lot and she reads a lot of crime fiction. So if she thinks something isn't working, it probably isn't working. And I'll change it before it goes to the publisher and the agent. So the publisher and the agent usually get the third draft. And by then it's already been edited, I say. I say to the editor, look, it doesn't need much editing, pal. It's already been edited. My wife's been through it. Okay, and so I have loads of inspirations, but tell me, who are your inspirations? Um, oh, I mean, every writer I've admired has become an inspiration, I suppose. Um, school teachers, that's great teachers who taught me English, and they were all very enthusiastic about my short stories I used to write, because as part of your English lesson, every week you have to write a short story. Um, and I loved it. 
at uni, we didn't have creative writing classes at university when I came to Edinburgh in the late 70s, but we had writers in residence, and one of them, Alan Massey, was the first one I'd come across who was actually a fiction writer as opposed to a poet. And I was starting to write fiction at that time, so he was very useful to me and very enthusiastic and very encouraging. And then the writers, the writers that you read, I mean, you know, people like Willie McIlvanny in Scotland, Alistair Gray, um, eventually people like Ruth Rendell uh, taught me a lot. I mean, I went, I went bottling up to Willie McIlvanny at the Edinburgh Book Festival in 1985, I think it was, just after I'd started writing the first Rebus novel. And I said, oh, I'm writing the book. It's a bit like your Laidlaw novels in Glasgow, but it's set in Edinburgh. And he signed my book, Good Luck with the Edinburgh Laidlaw. Um, I've got it here somewhere. Um, and, and, and that was great. And then eventually, you know, I was, ended up doing events with Willie McIlvanny, you know, having been published. So like, uh, it was just wonderful. And all the writers I met were just enthusiastic and said, don't let anything stop you. And I was kind of lucky in a way. In, I came along at a time of punk. 77, 78, when I was 17, 18, was the era of punk, as we've already discussed. And it was great because what punk said, doesn't matter what school you've gone to, doesn't matter how posh your parents were, doesn't matter if you can afford the gear, the equipment, whatever, just get on stage and do it, just do it. If you want to be a punk in a band, just do it, give it a go. Mm. That sounds such a liberating um, time. And I think we're kind of almost moving backwards. It's a time when, you know, if you want to be in a band now, you need lots and lots of very expensive equipment home studios and all the rest of it. It helps you if you've got parents who can help you out. You've not got the dole helping you the way that young working class bands used to be on the dole and just practice nonstop. Um, you can't do that anymore. So again, people who come from a privileged background have got a much better chance of making it in the business early on. Acting, getting into, uh, getting into a, a, a drama college or whatever, getting into a drama school, I think, again, it helps if you've got people who can talk to the, you know, people who've got, who've got a, a way in. Um, from a working class background, you not, might not know how to get in. And I think when I look at the students coming to university you now, I see much more privileged people. In, and I, I'm not saying I see fewer working class people getting in, but I think, see, when I was coming to uni, I got the full grant. You got 300 quid a term to study at university. That's, those days are gone now. My parents never had credit in their life. They never had a credit card. They never had tick. If they wanted something, they saved up and bought it. Colour telly, save up from your wages, we've got enough money to buy it. The notion that there some would go to uni and come up with a huge debt would be horrifying to them, anathema to them, to the way of life, their philosophy of life. And I think that's putting off people from going to uni is this notion of studying English where you don't know you're going to get a good job at the end of it. So how do you pay off the, the debt you've got? I think that's absolutely right. And I imagine it's going to put people off, which is really sad because we need to hear these voices and we need to see these people reflected on our stages or in our books. Okay, well, after all that heavy stuff, I think it's now time to move on to our quick fire question round. And I always say that these are the fundamentals on which I judge a person. So be afraid, be very afraid. Okay, right, here we go. I'm going to give you two choices and you just fire back with your preference. He's okay. Classics or modern? Modern. TV or theatre? Theatre. Chippy sauce or no chippy sauce? Definitely chippy sauce. The Bard or Burn? Ooh, oh, that's a difficult one. Probably the Bard. A pint or a whiskey? Normally a pint. Mary Queen of Scots or John Knox? <laughs> Mary Queen of Scots, the tragic figure. City or countryside? It's hard. I like both. I like both, but um, I'm a city boy at heart. A buffet or a la carte? 
a la carte. I do like nice restaurants. The stalls or the royal box? I'm a stalls kind of guy. Fancy Nancy or dress down? Oh, dress down. Look, I still dress like a student. No, it suits, suits are, for, are for court appearances. Robert Louis Stevenson or Sir Walter Scott? Oh, well, that's an easy one. I thought you were going to say Stevenson or Spark, which would have been very difficult for me, but um, Stevenson every time. Football or rugby? Yeah, I got in trouble for this because I wasn't watching the Scotland match last week when they played rugby because I just don't watch rugby. I don't get it. I had to play it at Beath High School and they didn't, they didn't teach us the rules. So we just sort of dived in. It was just rubbish. Oh, and so football. Hearts or hips? Yeah, you see, I stay out of that. I stay out of that. Now, here was the thing I did with the TV Rebus. Because um, Ken Stott is a, a, a big fan of uh, Hearts, they made Rebus a hips fan on TV, which he isn't in the books. Siobhan, uh, the, the cop, his one-time colleague, is a hips fan. Just to wind up the cops on you who tended to be Hearts fans. Uh, but Ken said that one of the hardest things he's ever had to do as an actor, this is a guy who went through four hours of makeup for The Hobbit, but one of the hardest things he's ever had to do is play a Hibs fan. So now we have a question from the audience. Uh, we put a call out to listeners and they send in questions which we randomly select. Our process isn't very sophisticated, it is pull a name out of a hat. Uh, the question is from Bill in Dundee and his question is, do you ever find your characters getting ideas of their own and what do you do about it? My characters do get ideas of their own, and that's usually the really interesting and exciting bits of the process. Uh, it's when the book or the characters decide to go in a direction I wasn't expecting them to go in. Um, so often, often, Rebus often does things that I'm not expecting them to do. Uh, Cafferty, the gangster, often does things I'm not quite expecting them to do until they do it, until I'm actually writing the scene and it's actually literally happening uh, in my head as it's getting transferred onto the screen or onto the page. Um, I really enjoy it. I just go along with it. I think, well, obviously they've got a much better idea of where the story wants to go or needs to go than I do. So I trust to the muse. I trust to the fact that it will be a better story at the end, which is why I tend not to do too much planning, because if I did lots of planning, probably the story would want to go off on a different tangent anyway. Um, so I might as well just not do the planning and wait for the story to tell me where it wants to go. In, in writing, we've got, they say there's two sorts of writers, planners and pantsers. You know, do you plan or do you fly by the seat of your pants? Um, and more crime writers than you might imagine actually just make it up as they go along. Well, thanks so much, Ian. You've been such an interesting guest and I feel like I've learned so much about you. I hope we can meet up for a wee socially distanced walk or even a cheeky wee pint soon. Well, what a fascinating guy, right? And the poor thing's missing the pub. Oh, well, I'm sure there's a few of us out there that can empathise. Anyway, thanks for listening in, and why not join me next week when I'll be welcoming top theatre critic, political and arts columnist Joyce McMillan into the cultural coven for some really interesting chat. Until then...